This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm John Campbell. I'm a philosophy professor in the department here. I'd like to welcome you to this uh, wet and rainy Howison lecture. Thank you for struggling through the elements to get here. Um, George Holmes Howison was born in 1834. When he was 50, uh, he came from the University of Washington at St. Louis to take the first endowed chair in philosophy at Berkeley, and he built the philosophy department. He was evidently a charismatic and much-loved individual. On his death, his friends and colleagues put together a fund that is funding today's lecture, even still, uh, to continue his work by bringing the most influential thinkers of the day out here to the rural wilderness of California. Um, And we're particularly grateful to Philip Kitcher for having made that long trek here today to the rural sublime Philip Kitcher is a John Dewey Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University. He did his PhD at Princeton, having done his undergraduate work at Christ's College in Cambridge. He began as a philosopher of mathematics and science, but then focused on philosophy of biology, and then on the role of biological research in society and politics, and then on the role, generally, of science in a democracy. He said, following Dewey, I believe in the need for a reconstruction of philosophy so that it will not be a sentimental indulgence for the few. I think it's fair to say that his more recent, I hope it's fair to say, that his more recent work has been deeply influenced by John Dewey's pragmatism, including pragmatism about ethics, and coupled with the pragmatism, a long-standing adherence to a quite radical naturalism. He's written a flood of well-received books. The two most recent have been Life After Faith, the case for secular humanism, and the seasons alter, how to save our planet in six acts. So not a sentimental indulgence for the few. He's also written on literature and music, in particular on Joyce and Wagner, and on Thomas Mann and Mahler. So will you please join me in welcoming Philip Kitcher, His title today is Progress in the Sciences and in the Arts. Thank you, John. Thank you very much, John, for that extremely kind and accurate introduction. Um, It's a great honor to give a lecture in this series, which has, over the past nearly 100 years, I think, drawn to Berkeley, to the the, the rural wilderness of Northern California, um, an incredibly distinguished series of philosophers, and I feel slightly humbled to be part of that. But it's, it's a great pleasure to be here, and thank you very much for inviting me. 
So what I want to talk about today and to, to the philosophy department tomorrow as well is part of a project to save what I think of as an endangered concept. And that's the concept of progress. Now, many people in the current world celebrate progress. Steven Pinker has recently written a book about the importance of progress of various kinds since the Enlightenment. Uh, but many people are also skeptical. John Gray, for example, has written a recent book in which he questions the possibility of progress. He urges us to give up on the idea, the myth as he thinks of it, of human progress. Now, there are many skeptics about progress around. Some people who think that it doesn't, doesn't make sense, that it serves merely as a concept that we use to congratulate ourselves unwarrantedly. Uh, I'm a friend of the concept of progress, but I have to also to admit that I think that the skeptics and the warriors are, are onto something. I think that the, the breezy confidence that Steven Pinker sometimes displays is unwarranted and that this concept deserves a deeper probing. And I want to do part of that probing today, but in a very restricted set of contexts. I want to talk about progress in two domains, in the sciences and in the arts. And let me begin by thinking about progress concepts because I think many of the worries that people have about progress come from not thinking carefully and precisely enough about what a progress concept is. And I'm going to do something, graduate students, this is a throwback to the dim and distant past, uh, when people talked about the logic of various concepts. And I want to talk about the logic of progress concepts. So when you talk about progress, you focus on something I'm going to call that thing a system. And you compare two of its states. And you say a change has occurred between the former state and the later state, and that change is a progressive one. And you can do this for any number of systems. You could talk about the Catholic Church, dividing time up according to papacies and ask whether the Catholic Church is making progress under Pope Francis. Or you could talk about the theory of the chemical bond and look at it at various stages from the 19th century uh, to the present and ask whether that theory has made progress. Or you could take a child or a young musician and ask, is this musician making progress? And sometimes it's useful to introduce mathematical concepts in doing that. That's especially so in a fourth kind of case. Imagine you have a friend who's in the hospital. Um, there's some substance inside that your friend's body or in the bloodstream or something like that that is um, different from what it should be. Perhaps it's too high. And the doctors chart your friend's progress by looking at the ways in which the concentration changes over time. And if you had measurements for each time point, you could, as it were, talk about continuous, the, con the continuous changes and the intervals in which progress was made and the intervals in which it was not made. So that's the first part of the logic of progress concepts. The second is that your progress concept can be more or less ambitious. You can set out to compare any two temporal states of the system that you're interested in. 
You give me a pair of years in the history, let's say, of New York City, and I'll tell you which one was progressive with respect to the other one. Okay? Or you can be much more cautious and say, well, I'm actually not really interested in making all kinds of comparisons. I just want to make some kinds of comparisons. And I'm particularly interested in temporally adjacent pairs of states. That's because I often want to use my progress concept in deciding how to go on, asking myself, would I make progress by going in this direction rather than that? And you might then aim for something that is locally complete. That is, you can make uh, comparisons between all pairs of temporally adjacent states. But even if you couldn't have that, having some ideas about which were progressive with respect to which others would still sometimes be very helpful. The third part of my logic of progress concepts is the most important. We tend to think of progress in terms of narrowing the distance to a fixed goal that's set out in advance. So, if you go on a family trip and you're going to a particular place, then you measure your progress by the diminishing distance of yourselves from that place. But much progress isn't like that. There's another concept, I'll call, think of it in terms of progress from, which I'll call pragmatic progress. Pragmatic progress occurs when you solve some of the problems or expand some of the limits of your current practice. Okay, think about a technology I heartily dislike, the technology of the smartphone. I don't actually own one. Um, I refuse to get drawn into this culture. Um, but the smartphone is not oriented towards some platonic ideal of the smartphone glimpsed by those who are lucky enough to come out into the light of Silicon Valley, right? Um, that's not the way it works. People make progress with respect to smartphone technology by focusing on the glitches and the difficulties and the limits of current smartphones and trying to remove those. So we get progress from and not progress to any long-term fixed goal. Okay, so I've begun in this rather pedantic and um, sort of analytic philosophical mode because I want to draw some morals. And that the first of these is that when we think about progress in a domain like the sciences or like the arts, the first question we should ask is, how are we defining the states of these systems? The second question that we might ask is whether we're committed to finding a progress concept that will be so ambitious that it will allow us to compare any pair of states. And the third is whether we need to talk about some long-term enduring goal fixed in advance. So I'll start with the sciences and think about some popular decisions that people make when they talk about progress in this realm. The first of these popular decisions is that when people think about progress in science, they say to things like, we know more than we used to. And that leads them to focus on a set of propositions that are, as is sometimes said, on the books at a particular moment in time. 
we might think of those as the corpus of propositions accepted by the relevant community at that time. And then they make a further move that progress is teleological. They think of the sciences as advancing towards some sort of complete truth. Perhaps it's the complete truth about nature, or perhaps it's the complete truth in a domain, as cell biologists might want to know the complete truth about cells. I want to suggest that both of these things are problematic. First, as has been familiar for at least half a century, there's far more to scientific practice than a simple set of propositions. The science of a time contains lots of other things too. It contains instruments, techniques, rules of evidence, and we can make progress in all of these respects. But more fundamentally, the idea of scientific progress as teleological deserves serious scrutiny. Think about the idea of the complete truth about nature or the complete truth about any significant aspect of nature. As a goal for human inquiry, that seems absurd. If Paolo Mancosu were here, I would ask him whether the, truth, the whole truth about nature might even be too big. It's not even coherent to think about the whole truth about nature. But even if it is, it's not something that we could ever hope to attain. So I think there are serious worries about this, these standard ways of thinking about scientific progress. And I'll illustrate that by thinking about this room. How many truths are there about this room for the period of this lecture? Well, I was originally trained in mathematics, and when I think about this, uh, it's pretty easy to generate an answer. There's some infinite number at least as great as the power of the continuum. Why is that? Because there are continuum many spatial points in this room. There are continuum many temporal points in the interval that this lecture will last. Uh, and at each of those uh, space-time points, uh, there's going to be uh, values of particular physical magnitudes. And then there are all the two-place relations, the three-place relations, the four-place relations, and so on. Uh, you can see you get quite a lot quite quickly. Could any human language express all of those truths? If so, which language ought to be chosen? How many potential languages are there for recording these truths? And how many of these truths are worth knowing? I hope the answer to the final question is more than one. Uh, if not, I'm in trouble. Now, the obvious reply to what I've just said is that that's a distortion of the teleological approach to uh, scientific progress. It's, we don't want them, this awful, vast mass of truth. What we want is a special kind of truth. We want nature's rule book. We want the axioms of the fundamental theories from which we could then derive all of the other truths about nature. Well, in principle, we could derive all of them. Uh, in practice, we could derive any of them that are of interest to us. So that's what we want. And once we have that, we can address any question that concerns us. This image of science remains extremely popular among journalists, 
among academics generally and among philosophers outside of philosophy of science. They think in terms of a Newtonian picture, the kind of thing that Newton celebrated in the Principia, where he says, I wish we could derive all the phenomena uh, by ways similar to the, um, the, the principles I've shown in the theory of gravitation. And scientists in various domains have struggled to live up to that. But it really doesn't work. And it fails for two reasons. First of all, there's vertical failure. If you think of the sciences as ordered in some kind of vertical hierarchy, physics could either be at the top as the highest science or at the bottom as the most fundamental science. Then there's chemistry, then there's biology, then there's neuroscience, then there's psychology, then there are things like economics and sociology and so on and so forth. The trouble is that you can't get from the most fundamental level all the way up because there are uh, junctures at which the derivations go astray. You can't derive all the allegedly special sciences from the allegedly fundamental ones. You can't, for example, get genetics out of biochemistry. But that's less important than another point, and that is what I'll call horizontal failure, to distinguish it from the vertical failure. And that is that universal principles are rare. They're welcome when we can find them. But most of the time, in most fields, scientists have to settle for a loose collection of models. Models that will cover the cases that are of most interest to them. And sometimes no single model will do. I suspect that in climate forecasting, we are forever committed to using a family of models that will partially agree with one another and will partially diverge from one another. The moral of my story is that science then is inevitably selective. Scientists proceed by looking at certain kinds of questions about nature. And that agenda of questions evolves over historical time. And we might ask how it's determined. Most of the time when we think about a science, we take it for granted that the scientists are asking the right kinds of questions. They are asking questions about the genuinely significant things, the things that we ought to be asking about. And almost all the time, I want to say, that assumption is completely justified. But it isn't always justified. And looking at cases in which it isn't justified points us in the direction of seeing how there's something more fundamental about scientific progress than simply taking for granted what scientists actually hail as the questions that are significant and important to answer. So let's go back to the early 20th century and ask a question about genetics. In 1900, three scientists independently rediscovered Mendel's laws or Mendel's rules as they were called at the time. In 1925, Lots of things had already happened in the development of genetics. People had begun to understand the relation between genes and chromosomes. They had used that to start gene mapping. They were able to identify all sorts of details of gene expression in particular organisms, in particular the fruit fly Drosophila melanogaster. All of that was terrific and inclines us to say, yes, genetics was making fantastic progress, but it was also doing something different. 
The building you see there, the eugenics record office, is now Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on Long Island. And in the teens and the 20s, it was set up to address and come to terms with socially important questions about things like feeble-mindedness and the decline of the race. Much of this, as was pointed out wonderfully and lucidly by the late Stephen Jay Gould, was profoundly socially destructive and morally extraordinarily dubious. And there was a whimsical side to it too. One of the genes that was sought uh, by the people earnestly involved in this kind of research was a gene for thalassophilia. Those of you with a little Greek will know what thalassophilia is. It's a condition typically expressed in males between the ages of 14 and 18 that leads them to run away to sea. Now, that sort of thing we could take in our stride, right? You're, you're, you're locating genes on chromosomes, you're mapping genes, you're doing lots of good stuff. Yeah, if scientists do a little bit of peculiar whimsy on the side, that's no big deal. But the genes for feeble-mindedness, all of that uh, attempt to understand the genetic determinants of socially consequential behavior was profoundly worrying. And so... It seems to me that the verdict on genetics in the early 20th century has to be mixed. And it has to be mixed because the frame with which we naturally start, the frame of saying, well, the scientists were asking the important questions, is that assumption is suspect in this case. We have to move to a wider frame and we have to ask about the way in which the science is actually embedded in society. So I want to say that the sciences make progress when they contribute to the wider human good. They supply information relevant to people's projects, and that information is made accessible to those who need it. When scientists are doing that, it is right to call their answering of those questions as progressive. But sometimes they pose different kinds of questions, and if those kinds of questions have socially damaging consequences, then we should not be so swift to declare that the science in question is making progress. Some years ago, I tried to embed this in, the, in an ideal of well-ordered science, where I thought of the common good as determined through a process of deliberation among representatives of various points of view in the population, who would try to identify the questions in a field that should be given priority after they had informed one another of one another's needs and after they were dedicated to try to meet those needs. And then well-ordered science would also include the thought that the answers to those questions flowed out into the general population. And that gives me a pragmatic sense of scientific progress. Science solves certain kinds of problems and the kinds of problems that it should be solving to make progress are the problems that people need to have answers to. And that means that what we have is a broader sense of scientific progress than the one that we started with, one that involves certain kinds of social elements. All right, now I'm going to turn to the case of the arts. Here, we make a very simple way of thinking about this 
that dominates our conversations about the arts. We think about the state of any mode of art, music or literature or painting, in any time period as consisting in the works that are produced during that time period. And sometimes we think of one period as superior to another. Think about English drama between 1580 and 1620 and compare that with English drama between 1620 and 1660. Well, the first period wins, doesn't it? I mean, the first period you have Christopher Marlowe, you have John Webster, John Ford, Ben Johnson, George Peel, John Fletcher, Francis Beaumont, to name just a few of the people who were around at that time. And in the second period, you're probably at a loss to name anybody whose plays still survive anybody who was active. Of course, I cheated. I chose my periods extremely carefully. And between 1620 and 1660, uh, the theatres were actually shut down for part of that time under Cromwell. And that, that didn't really encourage a lot of terrific playwriting. So, I mean, it's a bit of a cheat. On the other hand, you can see the way in which this uh, is supposed to work. So the popular conclusions are the arts don't make progress at all, but the sciences, by contrast, are the parade case of progress. Well, we've examined the scientific case, and I hope I've shown you what I think lies behind it, but it's deeply unfair. And the unfairness can be demonstrated when we look at the ways in which we define those original states for the two cases. In the case of science, we said that the state consists of a set of resources, propositions and instruments, accepted at that time and available for use by the people who live at that time. And progress consists in the fact that those resources accumulate and become better adapted to the needs of the people. In the case of the arts, we defined the state very differently. We just looked at the works produced during a time period. And so in the case of music, we might say music doesn't make progress. Did the music of 2015 make progress over the music of 1905? Get serious. Nothing composed in 2015 rivals Debussy's La Mer or Schoenberg's first string quartet. And then there are some pieces by Weber and I can throw in as a bit of dessert too. Or if... You, you incline to popular music. Nothing written in the last decade rivals the music of the Beatles, the Stones, the Grateful Dead, all those great people of the, of the 60s and early 70s. You know, get serious about it, okay? So, good. Let's apply that same standard to, to physics, for example. No physical discovery of 2015. See, I chose my dates carefully again. Rivals what Einstein did in 1905. Four papers. The one that I've got there is the famous paper on special relativity, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget the paper on E equals MC squared, paper on Brownian motion, the black body radiation paper. You know, um, I think any one of those papers dominates pretty much what the physics community produced in 2015. So, you know, what's source for the goose is source for the gander. If we do it one way in one case, shouldn't we do it the same way in the other case? But the real point of this, of course, is to get you started on thinking differently about progress in the arts, not to suggest that progress doesn't occur in the sciences. The physics 
available today includes what Einstein contributed in 1905. Indeed, practicing physicists don't have to go back and read those early Einstein papers. They're available in smoother and technically more accessible forms in the textbooks that, from which the physicists learn. And the music available today includes what Debussy and Schoenberg composed in 1905 and what the Beatles and uh, uh, the Stones and the rest of them did in the 60s and 70s. And so in both cases, we might say, there's progress. Science and the arts, an expanding collection of resources that help with human lives and human flourishing. So what I want to say about both of these cases is that the concepts of progress that apply are local, not global. I don't think we can make all comparisons. And pragmatic, not teleological. And in both cases, what we get is an accumulation of resources that help human beings to live better. And this also brings to our attention something that I won't stress today, but I think is an important point, that in both instances... It's an important part of overall progress that there should be institutions and parts of society that make those resources widely accessible. So the ways in which the sciences and the arts flow out into the public are also very important. And without them, we might not be as confident as we are in talking about the progress of science or the progress of the arts. But we shouldn't stop. I've only, as it so far, scratched the surface of, of, of both of these domains. I want to ask what exactly the contributions that these domains are may, make, because maybe there are residual differences when we look more closely at the kinds of contributions made by the arts and by the sciences. So let's talk about the scientific contributions. I usually say when I talk about this topic, you know, if I went out on the street and I asked people on the street, what is it that the sciences contribute uh, that makes us think of them as important parts of human progress? I usually say, well, what you typically get is stuff about medicine, agricultural innovations, bits of technology. I suspect that isn't true in Berkeley. Um, I suspect if I went out on the street in Berkeley, I might get a different answer. I might get what I'm going to call the official view, that what we actually get from science is an increased understanding of the universe and its operations. Ah, it's not, the, it's not, all, the, it's not all the medicines, it's not all the, uh, all the, all the new food stuff, it's not all of that. Uh, it's, it's, not the, it's not the bits of technology. It's the human understanding that we get. That's what's really crucial. And this was brought home to me um, when I came back from a run a couple of years ago, and I ran into a friend of mine who's a, a theoretical physicist who said, you've got to listen to the radio. You've got to listen to the radio, 10.15 this morning. It, it's the great sci greatest scientific announcement of our lifetime. He was born in the same year I was, so... I knew that what he said was false since the greatest scientific achievement of our lifetime was, uh, was made when we were six uh, when Watson and Crick uh, discovered the molecular structure of DNA. Uh, but I didn't want to sort of spoil his, uh, uh, his fun. And what he was alluding to was the detection of gravitational waves. All right. That for him and for his community 
is what's really important about scientific progress, the increase in understanding. Now, when we turn to the arts, it seems that these appear much more nebulous. And that might be because when people think about the contributions of the arts, they think in, they compare them to the practical benefits of science. So if the everyday view is the dominant view, I think one can understand why people say, ah, the arts, they don't contribute as much. They aren't as, they aren't as important uh, in accumulating these resources. The things, the things that are really important, the practical stuff. So I wonder whether pop, the popular comparison actually presupposes what I call the everyday view rather than the official view adopted by my friend, the theoretical physicist. I want to answer the question, what do the arts contribute, uh, in a Deweyan pragmatist style. I want to think about the arts as enriching human experience. And I want to think of this as, as having a number of different dimensions, of which I'll list three today. First is the intensity of aesthetic experience itself. Just the fact of engaging with a work of literature or a work of visual art or a film or a performance of dance or with a building or with a piece of music brings us to moments where I think we feel vitally alive and an intensity that is absent quite a lot of the rest of the time. So that, I think, is an important part of it. But this is, these are not simply isolated events or episodes. These are things which often, it seems to me, recur in our further experience so that later experiences that we have had are transformed by the aesthetic experiences of the past. What our, our relation to a particular poem, our relation to a piece of music or to a painting informs the way that we have further experiences. And they interact with one another in ways I will want to try to sketch later on. And that can lead not simply to an enrichment of our experience over time, but also, I think, to cognitive gains. So I'm taking a stand here, a Deweyan stand, on issues in aesthetics and that often divide theorists. I'm, I'm saying... I'm, I'm putting in my, 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 my case for pluralism, that we should not think about all individual works of art as valuable in the same way and for the same reason, because they may do differently on uh, these different dimensions of aesthetic contribution. So I think in the case of works of art, they give us new cognitions but they don't do it by informing us directly, by asserting or arguing with us. The novels and uh, works of literature that argue with us and that are didactic, um, I think in, in particular of, of Sartre here rather than Camus, um, seem to me less effective than the works that show us things. But the cognitive contributions come from modifying the ways in which we approach other parts of our experience. 
They show us new possibilities. And I want to say they sometimes provide us with new vocabularies. They refigure the starting points and methods of our discursive reasoning. When we think about cognitive contributions, I think we're tr we, we have a tendency to think as if they consisted in providing us premises from which we may might then draw new and different conclusions. But I don't think that great works of art and literature work that way. I think they show us things that lead us to conceptual revision. And that is not necessarily something that occurs in the moment. It's something that occurs through the rebuilding of something in our psychology that I'm going to call a synthetic complex. So think about the ways in which you react when you read a work of fiction or a poem or when you listen to a piece of music or when you look at a picture that really moves you. You pass through a sequence of psychological states and those are partly shaped by your antecedent judgments and conceptions and emotions and partly the product of your apprehension of the words, the colors, and the sounds. Out of that process comes something different, and it's something that unfolds in your reflection on it and in the interaction between what has happened to you and your further experience that rebuilds the ways in which your emotional and cognitive dispositions and your, your dispositions to use various concepts fit together. And so you get a restructuring of a part of your psychological life. This happened, I think, I mean, I will give two very simple and obvious cases. This happened for some Victorian readers of Dickens's novels when they read not only Dickens's descriptions of the plight of the poor, but also Dickens' vocalizations of the reactions of the bourgeoisie to the plight of the poor. People came to see themselves in those voices, and they didn't like what they saw there. And it came famously in Harriet Beecher Stowe's um, novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. In, in some ways, as a work of literature, it's not a wonderful piece of writing, but boy, is it powerful in, in changing the ways in which people think about their social relations with others. Even if Lincoln didn't say to Harriet Beecher Stowe when he met her, so you're the little lady who started this great war, it's something, it seems to me, he ought to have said. So, I think the same thing goes on in our interactions with bits of science sometimes. I think scientific understanding can do the same sort of thing. I think it did that for Richard Dawkins, who's written eloquently about uh, this and who says very often, you know, how unfortunate are those people who are deprived of seeing the world through a Darwinian lens. Look at what they are missing. And I, I resonate with that in Dawkins. I can see why he says it, and I think I can understand the phenomenon to which he is pointing. But now, I want to ask a question. I, we, won't do, we won't have a vote on this. Uh, but, uh, but when I've asked questions of, of, of people I've talked to about this material in the past, uh, I get a fairly strong uh, reaction and that is that most people in uh, whom I ask about this, after they've heard me talk about 
you know, art and science and, and along these or similar lines will say, yeah, actually for me, it's the works of literature I've read, it's the music I've heard, it's the films I've seen. That's, what, that's what's done most for me in, um, in, in having an impact for change in my life. But many people who are deeply immersed in the practice of the sciences will say, no, it's the sciences. I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, um, to make judgments about this. I think there are possible, possibly temperaments that, uh, that lead people into different areas of, of work and research, and some people may, because of their temperaments, be more inclined to pursue courses of life that lead the arts to be more important for them than the sciences. Another question we might ask is whether within the sciences themselves, these artistic reshapings play a critical role at moments of great scientific change. That's a thesis that Thomas Kuhn, who once taught here at, uh, at Berkeley, um, floated in a book that he wrote before the structure of scientific revolutions in his book on the Copernican Revolution. So I'm going to just... just a, a moment of subversion, a subversive thesis. If scientific progress is understood in terms of the pure benefits of greater understanding, maybe the case for progress in the arts is stronger than that for progress in the sciences because of the phenomenon to which I've just alluded, the fact that it seems that for most people it's works of art that have this transformative impact on their lives. But there's a residual difference. And this is going to lead me back towards the worries with which I began. Scientific progress, you might say, is cumulative in ways that progress in the arts isn't. And that's because of a phenomenon I pointed to earlier, that the scientists don't have to go back and read Einstein's 1905 relativity paper. The later stages of a science absorb and they build on the efforts of earlier stages. Whereas the arts always are looking for new ways forward, new forms of creativity. In uh, the words of, of Harold Bloom, um, poets engage in strong misreadings of their predecessors. They don't, they don't um, sort of uh, just thrust them into the past. They wrestle with them and come to something entirely new. Now, in changing environments new directions in art and sometimes new genres of art are needed. The works of literature that might have satisfied one particular generation living in a particular kind of world uh, don't speak, or they don't speak vividly and forcefully to people who live later. And that's because the environments in which we live, physical, social, and cultural, can change. So art, we might think of, is constantly renewed to adapt to the features of the age. Not all past artworks lose their significance by any means, that's for sure. In the history of the string quartet, the great string quartets of the 20th century, Schoenbergs, Bartoks, Janacek's, don't make Beethoven and Haydn and Mozart irrelevant. But by contrast, the words and things that older scientists produce are often hidden by the accomplishments of their successors. So nobody would go back and try to learn chemistry from Lavoisier's revolutionary book. 
Nobody interested in astronomy today would pick up Galileo's telescope. Interestingly, though, biologists still turn back to Darwin. Darwin is, the, is, is one of the great exceptions to this. Darwin continues to be relevant to the biology of today. And in this process, there's a change. And I think Eliot caught this in his essay on tradition and the individual talent, where he says, no poet, no artist of any art has his complete meaning alone. You cannot value him alone. You must set him for contrast and comparison among the dead. What happens when a new work of art is created is something that happens simultaneously to all the works of art which preceded it. And that means that there are gains and losses with respect to the arts. And that happened with respect to poetry because of the kind of poetry that Eliot and his friends wrote. After Eliot, Pound, and Yeats, Dante, Donne, and Tennyson get read differently. Dante is somehow elevated. He's somehow much more relevant, much more important than he had seen, seemed, say, to the Victorians. Donne emerges from being a quirky, uh, um, odd figure in the 17th century to being a lively and interesting and profoundly relevant poet. And poor Tennyson, the beloved, the beloved poet of the mid-19th century and beyond, somehow sounds lesser than he did. If you listen to Schoenberg's third string quartet and then listen to Beethoven's third Razumovsky quartet, as I once did at a concert in Berlin, where they played them in that order, the Beethoven sounds completely different after the Schoenberg, and you can understand why at the first performance of the Razumovsky quartets, the musicians protested, tore up the scores, and trampled on them. I mean, it suddenly sounds incredibly revolutionary. So... These things, this point that derives from Eliot, I think, raises a possibility, the possibility of loss, that you can lose access to a former work of art that might have been valuable for you. And I wonder whether the same can happen with respect to the sciences. But the important theme that I want to draw from this general phenomenon concerns something that I think is deeply lying behind the skepticism about progress with which I began. And that's the idea of people somehow being at odds with their own times, with their age. You know, you, I already confessed I don't own a, a smartphone, so maybe I am one of these people. Um, I think it makes sense to say of some people that their lives would have gone better if they'd lived in earlier times that their temperaments and talents are more adapted to those times. And that, may, that means that we might think that the artistic or scientific resources available at a later time do not allow the people living at the time to live as well as they would have done at some earlier time. They are less well adapted than they would have been. And this means that my comparison that on which I have been building throughout this lecture is only one possible way of making these comparisons. There are, in fact, two concepts in, that we might focus on in thinking about socially embedded notions of progress for the arts and the sciences. 
The first says, fix the environment, fix the present. Ask whether life in this environment would go better with the resources of the past or with those of the present. That's what I've used and I've said, well, in the present, typically you have most of the resources that you would have had in the past and a few more besides. And in both cases, probably the things that have developed in the sciences are, are, are adapted to the differences that have, uh, that have emerged in the present. So progress comes quite easily. But ask a different question. Consider life with the past resources in the past environment Compare it with life with the present resources in the present environment. If you do that, you may not get the same answer. You might get different verdicts. So there are two notions or two standards for progress. I want to say that a practice like science or art or religion would make weak progress if the developments between the earlier stage and the later stage enable those who live at the later stage to live better than they would have done if the earlier form of the practice had continued unaltered. That's the notion where you fix the environment. It makes strong progress if the developments made between the earlier stage and the later stage enable those who live at the later stage to live better than those who lived at the earlier stages, stage. The people who are skeptical about progress are skeptical often about strong progress. And I haven't really responded to what they say here. And that's because I think that they have a point so I'll conclude. I think weak progress is very common in the histories of both the sciences and the arts. I think strong progress often occurs in the histories of the sciences and the arts, but in both cases, there may be significant periods during which strong progress is not made. And worries about strong progress underlie the common forms of skepticism about progress, and those need to be addressed and dealt with. Now, how does it come about that strong progress fails where weak progress happens? The answer lies in a point I alluded to earlier. When we focus on individual domains of human life and human practice, it's completely possible for all of them internally to make progress and yet for them not to contribute overall to human well-being because of interaction effects between them. And that suggests that if you are interested in thinking about not simply being a pessimist, human progress is impossible, but actually trying to build on those cases in which both strong and weak progress have happened in human history, and as Dewey wanted, make them more systematic and sure-footed, then you'd better attend to this kind of phenomenon. And for that, you need an account of how various kinds of institutions and areas of human life fit together. So I want to cl conclude with a confession of a pragmatist metaphilosophy. This is drawn very largely from Dewey. Uh, and it's this, 
Wilfred Sellers famously says that the, the point of philosophy, what philosophy aims to understand is how things in the largest sense of the term hang together in the largest sense of the term. And that seems to me right. And it's important because in each age, philosophy should be in the business of trying to understand how in that age the conceptions and the practices that the age has inherited fit together and hang together. And without that, without that kind of systematic attempt to understand what the various parts and enterprises in which people engage do in combination with one another, we can't hope to do what Dewey hoped, which was to make human progress more systematic and sure-footed than it is. This is just the tiniest beginning of an attempt to work out a version of that kind of Deweyan pragmatism by focusing on a phenomenon that I think is not well understood and to which I hope to have brought a little bit of clarity. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a stark dis- distinction that, that I would have expected you to draw that you didn't draw. And so I want to question um, whether your pragmatism sort of commits you to reject it. And that's just the distinction between epistemic progress and social progress, right? So that it seems like that could be deployed to analyze the eugenics case, right? So, mm-hmm. And it seems in general sort of enlightenment picture of science would have it that in general epistemic progress would further social progress, and perhaps in general social progress would further epistemic uh, progress, but they can come apart, right? So you can have epistemic progress that hampers social progress. The eugenics case would be a case of that. And, you know, you could get all four varieties. Uh, so, so is that, that seems like a natural picture, right? And it uh, provides a natural diagnosis of a lot of cases. Is, is that a distinction? Is, is part of your view rejecting that distinction? Um, actually, yes. Um, and the, the argument was given, um, uh, but perhaps too quickly. Um, and perhaps the argument is confused. So, that, so let me try again. Uh, I, what I want to say is that um, the concept of epistemic progress itself um, is to be cashed out in terms of answering significant questions, and that raises the question of what counts as significant. And what I'm then doing is tying the notion of significance not only to some picture, some model of understanding that might be shared only by a tiny minority, but to the needs of a much broader society. So I'm saying that that a concept that figures in the notion of epistemic progress is itself socially and morally laden. So that's the, that's the way in which I'm trying to block the simple separation that you give, right? Um, I mean, if the scientific community answers the wrong questions, however good its answers are to those questions, it's not making progress. This is sometimes put in the, in the form of fantasies about scientists going off and pursuing completely trivial things. But to me, it seems to me the more forceful version of that is when scientists start 
addressing questions that are not only socially irrelevant, but socially harmful. And that's the point of the eugenics case. I mean, interestingly enough, the, the scientific community um, that I am analyzing there, the community of, of, of scientists from 1900 to 1925, wouldn't have um, made the distinction you make, right? Um, and we should remember that. Uh, thanks so much. That was really interesting. I, I just wanted to go back to something you said about um, science at the, towards the beginning of the talk when you mentioned uh, genetics between what, 1900 and 1925. Yep. And you pointed out that there was sort of progress al among some measures but not a, a, along others, which, which seems absolutely right. Um, and then you went on to outline your sort of conception of well-ordered science, where what science should be up to is contributing to the kinds of goods that would be decided on by some ideal rational yeah, deliberation yeah, yeah, yeah. between scientists and the public. I'm not sure of the details, but yeah, something. Yeah. And it sounded Perhaps like... I shouldn't have said that. It sounded like you were... One way of hearing what you were saying, I, I don't think this is what you meant, but one way of hearing what you were saying was this is the dimension along which to measure progress, namely, is the science doing better with respect to contributing to what would be decided at the result of this ideal deliberative process. And one way, I guess one way of hearing that makes it sound kind of teleological. You know, like, so just as like the truth that says, look, there's this thing, truth, out there, and we've got to measure it, progress as to whether we're approaching it. Uh, especially when you build in the idealization, right? It starts to sound like there's this thing out there, <laughs> right? um, and we should measure science as to whether we're approaching it. Now, I don't think that's probably what you did mean, so the question okay, is, could you so, elaborate? So actually, I, I, I mean, I think it may have been a mistake to talk about um, the ideal of well-ordered science in that context. What I wanted to do was to give some kind of substance to the idea of science contributing to the common good. And my way of doing that is to envisage what would be, this, is, this goes back to my sort of pragmatist views about ethics and ethical method, um, that goes back to the idea that that emerges from a certain kind of engagement with others where we take one another's um, needs and wishes and aspirations seriously and seek, using the best information we have, an outcome that all of us can live with. Now, that as an ideal is not intended to be a a specification of a final state we could reach. That as an ideal functions as a diagnostic tool for trying to identify in the present the places that are problematic. And so what I would want to do is suggest that we make progress of a certain kind, um, which is in a gender setting, say, by making those kinds of, dis of decisions better so that we come to do better at figuring out what kinds of, um, what kinds of, uh, of subjects and questions would be pursu pursued in a situation where people were more attuned to one another and more willing to deliberate in this way and that we then use that as a measure of how to assess 
scientific progress more generally. And I'm, I'm being quite liberal in most of the talk about, about the standard. I'm, I'm, I'm taking it for granted. I mean, even if, even if the, the, the molecular biologists of today are not doing the best they could possibly do at, um, at figuring out what the question, they're doing pretty well, right? And, I'm, and, I want to, and I, I'm going to cut them some slack on that. I mean, I think that actual scientific communities most of the time are asking the right kinds of questions. And that if, we, if we've moved in the direction of, um, of having the kinds of, of scrutinies and deliberations around what kinds of topics are best to pursue, um, that the public would rightly endorse them. So, I'm, so I'm, what I'm suggesting is, yeah, pretty much everything is fine, but there are going to be these anomalous cases, and the anomalous cases show up when we start thinking about the common good in the terms that I've attempted to... Um... So, I mean, there's a sense in which there's, a, um, there's something a little bit vertiginous about this, because the standard that is used, as it were, to assess... Um, the contribution to the common good is a standard itself so that we can only apply imperfectly and with respect to which we also need to make progress. More about this tomorrow. <laughs> so I wanted to ask about textbooks a little bit because th this is one place where the disanalogy seems to, to come out. And right. So in, in physics, a textbook might explain an idea in a way that everyone thinks is more perspicuous than <clears throat> the original presentation by Einstein or whoever. The original, usually there's some rough edges, there's some conceptual missteps and things. These get cleaned up, and the textbook gives you the idea, the same idea, but better. But that's very different from what happens in music. Mm -hmm. So music professor, music textbook doesn't rewrite a Beethoven quartet better so that everything essential that you were supposed to get out of the Beethoven Quartet, you now get in a more perspicuous, better, more effective form. Um, instead, they just tell you to listen to the Beethoven yeah, Quartet. Exactly. So why, I, I, I guess I didn't quite see what your, your take is on that in the end. Um, it leads into something that I, I, about which I'm... Um, uh, um, with which I'm struggling, and uh, and that is the. So I'll, I'll say I'll say another Deweyan thing. Dewey says um, at one point that any general philosophical account of something is tested in the crucible of its consequences for education, and so you've thrust me into the consequences for education. Now, in the case of the. Uh, sciences, if we are really interested in improving understanding, improving the, as it were, the transformative effects that the sciences that can potentially give in people's psychological lives, what we want is just what you described, efficient, perspicuous ways of, of, of identifying um, what's really essential. In the case of artworks, what we want is making those artworks accessible to individuals. And it seems to be a consequence of my views. It's a consequence I accept 
that education in the arts has to be, is more complicated and more difficult than education in the sciences. And that's because um, in the evolution of our social environments, genres proliferate, styles proliferate. And if you're thinking about a young person for whom you know, there's this massive collection of resources, how can that person be led to find the, the, the things that are going to have the transformative effect on him or her? That suggests that we actually need to spend an enormous amount of time and think very, very seriously about how we do education in the arts. Whereas education in the sciences um, faces, poses another challenge to us. I mean, if you really, if you take the transformative view that I have, then the emphasis on education in the sciences should be precisely at getting this kind of conceptual clarity with respect to the fundamental breakthroughs and the big, the big ideas in the sciences, and also the understanding of the methods of the sciences. And it should be much less on learning lists of amino acids or, or memorizing diagrams about complicated relations within the cell and all of that sort of thing. And I think at the moment, both forms of education in, um, in the affluent countries suffer from the fact that we think, in the, in the scientific case, that we should, as it were, force everybody through this pathway, which is necessary for those who are going to want to do creative work in the sciences to traverse. And what that has done to very many young people, I think, is deaden the scientific curiosity with which they start. And so I don't know how to do this, or I don't know how to, how to formulate this recommendation, but it seems to me important that up to a certain age we should treat all people as if they were potentially wanting to become scientists. But then there comes a moment at which what we want to do is imbue this sort of tremendous sense of, we want to retain and, and, and imbue this tremendous sense of natural curiosity about the world with the conceptual uh, framework that will enable the people then to, um, you know, to continue to engage with the scientific discoveries that will occur in their lifetimes. In the case of arts, it's different. It, you know, the people will come in, they will, they will differ in the kinds of art forms they like, they will differ in the kinds of genres they like, they will differ in the kinds of styles they like. And individual attention seems to be needed both to take them to the initial things that, um, that are, are, are valuable for them, to give them a sense of what it is to have that kind of transformative engagement with art, and then to try to broaden from that, to build. And that, these tasks, I think, are practically enormously difficult. And it's a consequence of my view that they have to be undertaken. And you're, I, I, so I take your point as a completely correct observation about, but it's an observation about, uh, in the end, about than the different needs of education in these areas. Uh. When you were talking about gains and losses, I had a, an association, or I, just, I started a train of thought that was not really in what you were saying, but I started thinking about the kinds of dynamic of gains and losses that happen in any conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, like something said at the beginning of the conversation 
appropriate to the beginning, maybe later on in the conversation would it's been superseded by other insights that we've we've gathered or we've we've produced. And then I started thinking, well, in the life of a marriage, think of all the, how every time you say something to your partner, it resonates with mm-hmm. things you would have, the way you would have said that at an earlier stage in the relationship, or the reasons why you say it this way now, and you're using a turn of phrase that she used before, and you're using it now, and knowing that she'll know that you used it. And there's this, uh, there's this um, history, this thick history that informs the present, and describes a kind of progress, or a kind of, of ongoing ongoing life of the party, life of the life, life of the culture, right? Because mm-hmm. you, you can scale this up. And I'm, I was wondering if, in a way, your idea about art was, if that was kind of the, the picture you were suggesting, that the, the kind of transformations, the kinds of episodes that the work of art takes part in, the kinds of transformations it affords you, are like that. They're embedded in this conversation. And this is related to the educational point of view, because yeah. in some sense the kind of conversation we do in the lab is different than we do in the culture. And one of the things, imagine our students, they're coming late to the party. And there's a lot of talk that's been going on. Many bottles of wine have been drunk. And we want to sort of get them to figure out how to listen to what's going on now, which is a function of what's been going on. And that happens very differently in the context of art than in the context of science. I think that's right. I mean, one, th- one, of the th- one, of the, one of the points I made about the, um, the Deweyan conception of the value of art is that um, the, the work continues to resonate with you and, and its later impact on you is dependent not only on, uh, on the changes that were produced at the time, but the way those changes have, have, have led to further interactions in your subsequent experience. And that, of course, I mean, in many cases, the process of psychological change that goes on in relation to a particular work of art for an individual could last a lifetime, right? It can be like a very long, enduring marriage. So, um, I mean, with respect to Joyce, I come back to Joyce again and again and again, and it's always different. It's always, there, there's always new things there. There's always, there's always something that points me in new directions. And that's because of the ways in which I've grown, but it's also because of the order in which, uh, in which a particular series of, of previous interactions occur. So I think that's right. I wonder whether that's entirely absent from, from thinking in the sciences. I don't, I'm, I'm not talking now about you know, students coming to understand things, but I'm talking about in the life of a creative scientist. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, it seems to me that there's a lot of room for contingency built in in both of, in both of these domains. It's not inevitable that uh, once you start down a particular line, it has to go in this direction. It could have gone, it could have gone quite differently. And I, and I think, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, um, that in retrospect is unnerving about the general phenomenon of progress. That is, when we look back on many episodes in, in the past, that we count, and perhaps with very good reason, as being, um, as being account, uh, episodes of progress, we realize how easily they could have gone in different directions. So contingency is unnerving, I agree. 
wonder if I could follow up on, on Dewey for a moment. Yeah. Um, one of the, uh, well, the, the, first, the first sentence of Art as Experience is one of the great sentences in aesthetics. It's something like, um, the thing that gets in the way of framing an adequate theory of art is the existence of the art objects themselves yeah. on whose basis we frame such a theory. And his idea is that we think the art is somehow intrinsic to the object or the thing, when in fact, the thesis of the book is that art is experience. Yeah. Art literally is experience. Um, he then goes on and offers a theory of experience according to which all experiences are aesthetic because for him, aesthetic is a, it's a condition on being an experience that it has a certain kind of integration, a balancing of parts. So that so I'm going to read Dewey a bit differently because it seems to me that the, the, the dominant in the book is a tone of regret that be precisely because of the divorce between everyday life and the art world, the world of art objects, um, experience has become flattened for people. So, for, so Dewey wants desperately to restore the creative part, the, the, the idea not just of the individual as a consumer of, of artworks which are produced elsewhere, but the, that being, inter, but the, as it were, the interaction with other people's artworks as being in interaction with one's production of things oneself. And that makes the answer to this earlier question about education even more complicated, because it suggests that a part of the, of the development of um, the young person who comes to interact fruitfully with works of art consists in um, bringing about the conditions where that person can find his or her own creative work of art. So, uh, so I mean, I, I think, yeah, I, I know that Dewey is inclined to sort of go, go off the end and say all experience is aesthetic, but it, it, that really is quite at odds with, the, uh, with the, I think, this very important theme in artist experience. Yeah, so I was wondering um, how your account would treat um, two different sorts of uh, periods in the uh, development of science. Uh, so, like, the first being one uh, in which, um, like, as the discoveries are being made, um, it seems that uh, the common good is being benefited. Like, say, if we take for granted that, like, uh, the development of technology in, like, the 20th century, uh, you know, greatly benefited the people who lived through it, but is ex but accelerated climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, you know, a period that then runs into those sorts of uh, future uh, worsenings of the common good. And then kind of the flip side of that, uh, periods in which maybe we're not asking questions that seem... Uh, like they would be fruitful, we're not making discoveries that are helping um, you know, the common good of like our contemporaries, but eventually um, it becomes clear, like in retrospect, that we were laying the foundations for um, for necessary, or sorry, we were laying necessary foundations for well, like discoveries yeah. that yeah. would help people. And I guess a slight sub-question to that second part, sorry, uh, this is getting really long, but um, is uh, because that often does happen in science where we'd start out by asking questions that like lead us to results that are completely unpredictable, take us in different directions, and could end up benefiting 
the common good. Um, I'm, I'm curious uh, what bearing that might have on like your prescription for trying to you know model like asking the right questions, like ones that like you know, would be democratically chosen more or less. Thank okay. you. Excellent questions. Um, there are two questions. One is about what, what happens when it, we've got these unforeseen ghastly consequences. Um, and the answer there is, you know, it's perfectly justifiable for people at the early stages to think they're making progress. And maybe they are making progress for a while. But it's not part of my thesis to suppose that if you go on doing the same thing, that is genuinely progressive earlier, there can't come a point at which it tips and goes the other way. So with respect to quite a lot of environmental issues, actually, one could say, so people engage initially in something that's genuinely progressive, they keep doing it, and it keeps being progressive for a while, but then there comes a moment at which they think of themselves as making progress, but then they're wrong, okay? So that's, that's the way in which I want to address that kind of case. The other case is, 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 uh, is also, I think, very challenging and very interesting. So um, it is surely the case that there are going to be occasions on which you get unpredictable in advance um, benefits from pursuing a particular line of investigation. So let's now put this in the framework of um, of people deliberating about, as it were, what projects to fund or what projects to pursue. So the flat-footed way of doing this is to say, well, you go through the things that are obviously going to meet the, uh, um, the needs of the people here and now. But I want my deliberators to know some things about the history of science too. And one of the things I want them to know is that in the course of the history of science, sometimes the indirect route has been very, very important. And that sometimes it's been very good to just to let uh, people who have apparently irrelevant questions to ask um, follow their hunches. So um, I used to, you know, I used to always tell my students in philosophy of biology that there were two strategies in the early decades of the 20th century for coping with um, human disease. One is, let's go do the genetics of human disease right now using Mendel's methods, okay? And the other was, let's think about fruit flies, <laughs> and milk bottles and bananas in a tiny little room in, in a Columbia building, right? It's another thing I tell my, my, my students, you know. Uh, you know, when, when Sturtevant was a sophomore, he discovered gene mapping. You know, you might consider doing something like that too. Um, but, uh, okay, so there are these apparently irrelevant questions, and of course they lead back 70 or 80 years later to exactly what the, what the other school wanted to do. So there are lessons that we can draw from the history of science. If you actually think of this as a process in which um, you, know, you, you do the best you can, and part of doing the best you can is to take on some ventures which, whose relevance isn't immediate. Now, of course, you can always choose wrongly. You can always back the wrong, the wrong people who look terribly bright and excited about some idea, and it may lead nowhere. But um, 
it seems to me that if you were thinking about directions in which science could go, how could you do better than this? How could you do better than attend to human needs in the light of all the evidence, which actually includes the very phenomena that you're pointing to? I mean, uh, I think informed democracy here is the best we've got, uh, and, uh, but it's not perfect. I, there's, a, uh, there's a question I really want to ask you, but Hannah. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks very much for that. It was really interesting. Um, I wanted to go back to the distinction that you made at the beginning between, I think it was, a teleological uh-huh. progress uh, towards a goal and pragmatic progress where you're working from something. I think I know what this question is going to be, but, oh, but ask, but ask it anyway. <laughs> I was going to say, why don't you go ahead and answer it? <laughs> no, 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 no. Why don't you ask it? And then, um, um, well, I first had a kind of question about the, uh, how the distinction works, but also um, how important it is to the larger things that okay. you want to do in this project. Um, and the kind of question that's internal to it is that when I think about progress from a problematic situation, I think about the notion of uh, a problem. And on the face of it, a problem is something that kind of impedes you from doing something that you want to do or, or aim to do. So even though I do get and like the idea <laughs> about a contrast between moving from and moving to a clearly defined goal, it does seem to me that there's something teleological built into the idea even of the pragmatic uh, progress. Was that the question you were expecting? Yes. (laughs) Yes, and it's a very important question, and so I'm glad to have the opportunity to answer it. You're right. There's got to be something which we might think of as a local goal an end in view, Um, because what I want is relief from the problem. So in that sense, I've got. um, But I was a little bit more careful than I sometimes am today because I did say a fixed long-term goal. Mm -hmm. So let me give you an example that that is supposed to warm you up for, for, for seeing the difference between what we might think of as local teleology or local... um, uh, you know, local goal-directedness and what I was calling teleology and the having a fixed long-term goal sense. Um, okay, so I am a pretty poor gardener these days. And I look at my flower bed and it's dreary and it's full of weeds. And I want to do something about it. And I have a number of desiderata. And these desiderata may not be jointly satisfiable. Okay, that's, that's an important part of the story. I want um, lots of color. I want, plant, I want blooms at different times of the, of the, of the, of the summer. Um, you know, I want harmony of colors. I want easy care. I want it to be drought resistant and blah, 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 blah. So what do I do? I start out in a particular direction. I buy some seeds. I, um, I use these ideas in, um, in uh, sort of starting out buying some plants and, some put, and putting seeds in and watering. And, and, you know, some 
years later, after numerous experiments and trials and applications of these um, desiderata and others that have cropped up in the meantime, I get something and I say, oh, it's pretty good. This is what, the sort of thing I wanted. Going back to Alva's point, it could have gone in any, any number of different directions, right? Um, I want to say that in a certain sense that wasn't teleological. I didn't have, as it were, at the beginning, a fixed goal. I had, I had a, a, a problem in the sense of something that was unsatisfactory. Its unsatisfactoriness was associated with various desiderata, but you know, I rev- I've revised some of the desiderata along the way. I've uh, um, and it's all been a sort of contingent, uh, path-directed uh, process. The deeper question you're asking is, how do you identify problems? What's a problem? And that's, that is a very deep question, but I want to say much more about that tomorrow. <laughs> that, that is, I mean, that's a really deep and serious question, and, uh, and any, anyone who wants to talk about progress as I want to talk about it has to have an answer to that question. Um, I, I'd like to ask you about the relation between the conception of progress that you're um, roughing out and um, the conception of progress that the scientists or the artists, the practitioners themselves have in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if I'm an artist and my overriding objective is to make something truly avant-garde, I don't care about the public good. I mean, the public good can go and get stuffed. I, I, I want to do something that moves things on. Um, or uh, uh, if you think about um, psychiatry, mm-hmm. psychiatrists really are really, what's the word I want, ta- bother about um, whether there has really been progress in psychiatry. Now, from the point of view of the public good, there's clearly been a lot of progress in psychiatry. I mean, pe- patients are no longer bundled into unfunded asylums and so on. Pe- standards of clinical care are a lot better. But when psychiatrists torture about um, whether there's been any progress. What they mean is that, for especially for complex disorders like schizophrenia or major depression, they don't understand what's going on any better than they did a century ago. That, that's the fear, that when you're looking for the nuts and bolts of it, and it's not really an issue about the public good. You, you, you would not assuage that worry, maybe we're not making any progress in psychiatry, by saying, but look, the standards of clinical care are improved out of all recognition. That's not what they mean. Yeah. Or if, sorry. Uh, no, it's uh, a, if, again, it's like the, the question that was asked down here. It's, yeah. it's two questions, and they're both good ones, and they're both ones that I, that I need to face up to. Let me deal with the psychiatrist first. So the psychiatrist may well be in the grip of what I call the official view, right? So they, they may be thinking, what we've got to do is tell the truth about the, about the human psyche and the way it gets disordered in various ways. Um, and that may blind them to one of the modes of progress. I mean, part of my, part of, part of my view allows, and you can see this in, in the way that I, I, st- I, I talked about the contributions of science not being simply sets of propositions, but also techniques and, and so on and so forth, is that you might make progress in one mode, and even though you are making no progress whatsoever in another mode. And I, what I want to say about the psychiatrists is that they're, because they, they perhaps have inherited this official view, 
in, in its application to psychiatry, they've overlooked an important mode of psychiatric progress, which is, which is in forms of practical care. Okay, so that's, that's the way I would, I, I, would, I would deal with that. So what about the artists? Um, so the artists are also, I mean, the artists you describe is very much um, in, the, in an internal tradition with which that artist is interacting, right? It's not just, you know, I want to do something avant-garde, but rather I've got ideas about where to take, um, you know, abstract expressionism next, or I, I've, got a, I've, got a, I've got an idea about where to go next with 12-tone music, or... Um, or, um, or what, um, what minimalism should do next. So that's very much, again, um, you know, the, the idea of there being sort of an, an internal sort of standard that's cut off from the public. That has... But there are other artists whom I think are moved by the fact that the kind of art that has been produced doesn't speak to certain classes of people. So some artists, uh, I think, um, are moved to say, look, uh, what we need is a new form of music because everybody's, you know, I mean, the young, the young are not turned on by, um, you know, the, sort of the high music that has, that has gotten such a lot of uh, uh, status in the culture. What we need is crossover stuff. We, 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 Radiohead and uh, Radiohead needs to come to terms with Ligeti, and then we will we'll put the two together, and we're going to make something fantastic. Um, and that's much more outwardly directed, it seems to me. So there, so there, it depends. And you can think of this in terms of the novel, right? I mean, you know, the the the, the marginalized audiences to whom my novel will now speak. Um, and, and that, I think, is, I, th I think that's a genuine, that, that's, there you see the social stuff coming. So I think it's, 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 it's a mixture. But it's a really good thing to think about. I guess I have a background Quinean kind of worry about, um, if you said my conception of progress is picked up from what's internal to each discipline, and what the, what the practitioners are thinking in each discipline. That would be one take. But uh, as you presented it, your conception of progress seems to come from outside yeah. any particular discipline and to be something that's being worked out Good. a priori. Uh, no, yeah. not a priori, but, but actually in terms of a, of a wider reflection, which I pointed to at both the beginning and the end. I mean, the conception of progress comes is really wrestling with skepticism about the very idea. What the very idea of progress? What is it to talk about? And that skepticism is partly based on the idea of, um, yeah, you can talk about progress internal to one of these en enterprises or domains, but when you enlarge the frame and you look at the human consequences, I mean, if you think about all of the people uh, who, um, who are saying, who are deriding the idea of progress, they're all moved by this thought that as you expand your vision, right? So take a, take a very simple example. We both were, um, grew up on, on an island that, uh, um, that made fantastic economic progress in the 19th century, right? 
expand the frame, look at the places that were feeding into that. Uh, and you want to say, no, it's compromised by all of that. It's compromised by the exploitation of India and so on and so forth. And it's precisely that move, the move of, of expanding the frame. And so that's what pushes me. And it pushes me in the genetics case, as I, I mean, I was challenged by the, by the very first question. It, that challenges me to look at the ways in which the, um, the consequences pan out for um, the broader society. That's because it seems to me that's where you have to respond to skepticism. So it's not a priori, but it's, an, it's based not only on looking at the internal constraints of the discipline, but also at a broader uh, set of facts about how that discipline is situated that then, if not attended to, foster this kind of worry and skepticism about progress. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Okay, good. Last call. Um, I, I think I just want to follow up this, this yep. conversation you were just having with John because because there does seem it, it does seem like you're tying progress potentially too much to its actual effects on um, you know the the flourishing of of people in the broader society. I mean, it seems like there's a perfectly intelligible narrative where there's all kinds of progress going on in the science and the arts. Yeah. If you start from the internal perspective, the problems get more and more difficult and challenging and potentially inaccessible. Um, and so the, the benefits of engaging with them become harder for the society to uh, to realize in some ways. And but but you might you might say there's a, there's a lot of progress going on. Unfortunately, as we've disinvested in education simultaneously yeah. with the the problems becoming, you know, more and more um, challenging to understand on their own terms. You know, the the benefits of this progress are accessible to an ever smaller set of people. Um, you know, I want to say about that situation, it still, might still be the case that if people could acquire an appreciation for the things that are going on in the different domains, it would enrich their lives in all kinds of ways, counterfactually. But it isn't, in fact, because, you know, they don't have the educational opportunities and so on. And it seems like in that situation, we do have progress, but it's not bringing about the kinds of doing and benefits Good. that Good. you're... Um, yeah. That, that you're pointing to. So, right. what do you say about that? I say I say that there that the a fourth part of the logic of progress concepts is that you're always looking at a frame, and and you can take the internal frame, and we can say, I mean, we do say a lot of the time this scientific domain is making ra rapid progress, and we don't even think about whether. The, whether the questions that are being answered have social merit or anything like that. So that seems to me perfectly reasonable. But when, but I think the skeptics and the cynics say, enlarge the frame. See if your judgment is stable when you enlarge the frame. And what they want from progress is something that when you move to the widest frame, which is probably the impact on humans and maybe more than humans, um, across, you know, not only the present but also the future turns out to be positive. So it's as if you, are, you could imagine a sequence of frames that get wider and wider and wider. 
sort of the, the thought is that real progress is you, know, you look at the, the narrowest frame, it's there. You enlarge the frame, it's there. It continues. It's stable as you enlarge the frame. Um, so that's, that's the thought. Now, the example that you gave was really interesting because, of course, you can, you can get this situation. And it almost came up in the question. There was another scenario that was very close to the two that were offered at the back where you, you think about a scientific development like the discovery of quantum mechanics, which from the internal point of view is really important, and then in the 30s starts to trouble various people because it, it enables the production of these extraordinary weapons. Okay? Now, what happens if you get uh, a, an awful social consequence because a scientific, piece of scientific understanding answer to a, what seemed to be a very, very good question gets translated. So this is exactly what I'm thinking of as institutional friction. You can have um, an institution of policy making that surrounds the, the science and translates it into practice that does horrible things, even though the, the institution itself is not guilty. So that can happen, and that, I think, happens in the case you imagine, where, as it were, the, the sciences are making these wonderful benefits, but the educational system in science, science is so dismal and deteriorating that the, the effect on the broader public isn't appreciated. So absolutely, I mean, this is, um, so there's a lot to be said here about frames and the interactions among institutions within society, and um, yeah. <laughs> and I hope to say all of it at some point. <laughs> and better than I just did. That was wonderful. Lucid, deep, unexpected. <laughs> Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.